When our post-everything world has turned life upside down, how do you even know which end is up? If you're committed to a community or a cause greater than yourself, you don't have the luxury of checking out or the freedom to burn out. It's not enough to just keep surviving. We need to thrive again. This is Post Everything. A podcast about remapping culture and rethinking leadership in a liminal age. Hey, Brad, do you have any idea how many notifications you get per day on your phone? Any idea at all? Uh, I don't, but I do know the approximate increase in heart rate I experienced just hearing you ask the question. <laughs> is that relevant to your interest here? <laughs> it is. It is. It's, it's going to be. I read this article by uh, David Vendrell on the Future Party, and he talks about how many text messages, or not just text messages, but notifications teens get on their phone. He says the average kid in the U.S. between the ages of 11 and 17 receives at least 237 notifications a day oh, Lord. from their friends, while some receive up to 5,000 notifications per day on their phone, which is just crazy to me. I mean, that gives me anxiety too, just reading it. He also says that 58% report that they sometimes spend less time with friends so they can be on their phones, while 30% use their phones to avoid their feelings. That's interesting to me because that has to be doing something to them, right? Like the dopamine hits, the lack of in-person interaction, not just them, but us. I think I'm just wildly impressed that teenagers are aware that they're trying to avoid their feelings by looking at their phones. I don't know that 30% of adults <laughs> are aware of how much that drives them. And yet, man, teenagers have the added difficulty of puberty and not knowing who you are yeah. yet at all. So. You know, you and I are, you know, at least elder millennials. I think you're uh, Gen X, right? I identify as a zennial. You identify a as a <laughs> Well, the defining feature I of resonate. that kind of very special group of demographics that is the Oregon Trail generation is that you had a, right. an analog childhood and a digital adulthood. And you got it, baby. Yeah. And there, I think there's something about that experience in your formative years that. I think people in our sub-generation, it's not even a full generation, but like our kind of very narrow demographic might have a greater awareness both of what we've lost as well as how easy it is to fall down that slippery slope because yeah. we're not so far removed from our formative years that the digital formation that happens hasn't like, we are not immune to it at all. And so, right, right, right. Yeah. John, we just finished an entire season on artificial intelligence, which, you know, many were skeptical. And by many, I mean mostly you, but I think that <laughs> an entire season of that has been fascinating in that, I mean, I don't know about you, but I just did not fully appreciate, even if I suspected, how much and in the myriad of ways technology forms and shapes us. Even the article that you're talking about, right? it kind of illustrates this pattern of attention capturing and shaping our intention in exactly. ways that we're not even actually intending to, but because we then automatically respond and use and engage without intention, it functionally is using and capturing our intention using attention. And that reward system is a dopamine cycle that gets you behaviorally addicted to a cell phone. So that 
<laughs> I think, John, when we're looking at artificial intelligence and, you know, human anthropology, it became very clear throughout the season that the intersection of those two is formation. Yes. And if technology, AI specifically, and technology in general, is forming and shaping us, then I think as we started going throughout the season, we started realizing we don't actually fully really appreciate or understand how formation works. Like, what does that even mean? How does it happen? Right. Right. How do we evaluate what is good formation or bad formation? What is formation that leads us to becoming more fully human and therefore flourishing? Yes. Versus yes. making us less human and not flourishing. So, yes. You know, we used the analogy many times throughout the season of, you know, we feel like we are fish trying to describe the experience of being wet, but it's the only thing we've ever known. And when we're talking about formation, John, I'm curious, like, do you feel like as a result of season two and or as we're starting to prepare for season three, how would you describe the water that we're swimming in? How do we build a greenhouse, a shelter for mm -hmm. forming and shaping those within it for the sake of the world outside it? If we don't first understand the ways in which our environment is shaping and forming us outside of the greenhouse and in ways that are not actually hospitable to or flourishing fully human people. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I think it's challenging because it's hard to see what is forming us or deforming us in the moment. I feel a little deformed by how many times you said attention, intention, and volition, but that's okay. I can move on. <laughs> Sounds like Dr. Seuss, but we're all right here. Annoyed is not the same as deformed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I read another article by Hannah Sal. I hope I'm saying her last name right. And the article is about how people are lonely or and more indoorsy than they have been in the past. And I just couldn't help but wonder if that was something that COVID had done to deform us in some way. Mm. So that, you know, we don't see loneliness as part of human flourishing. We see it as something that like is not thriving, right? Loneliness doesn't equal being fully alive. Well, it's interesting too. Like even the words that you're using, lonely, nobody would be like, oh, that's a neutral or a positive word. That's No, it's negative. But indoorsy, yeah. I hear that as neutral, but yeah. is it? Well, in the article, she kind of explores how being with people and being outdoors go together. Oh, and interesting. sort of being indoors in your own space means less contact with people. I mean, that just naturally makes sense. But it made hmm, me just okay. wonder, are like we getting a residual effect of COVID now where we're looking at some of the ways that it shaped us to be by ourselves. Mm. So now here we are post COVID and there is a deformation that has happened in our humanity. I don't know. Mm. That's just a question that popped in my mind as I read the article. Here's another thing that popped up. I was listening to the rebuilders podcast and we'll link it in the show notes. It's a great episode with Mark Sayers from July of this year. And he talks about this phase of individualism we're in that he calls crisis individualism. So he sees individualism as having three waves or three stages. The second stage was where people were fleeing mediating institutions because institutions were seen as things that blocked self-expression, that blocked freedom, that blocked human flourishing as defined by self-expression. And so what we're seeing now is this wave of individualism that is the fallout from people leaving institutions that form them and rather mm. seeing self-expression as the way to flourishing. So one of the things he says that's happened as a result of that, we see that economics has invaded all of life 
nothing is sacred in this crisis individualism. Everything can be bought, including people. So people now think of themselves on social media as like constantly having to market themselves or always be on brand no matter what's happening in their life or always trying to sell themselves. And so that's interesting to me. Like that doesn't sound like human flourishing to me. That form of individualism actually sounds quite deformative because people are aware of everything and ultimately committed to no things. So you always have to be selling yourself and in front of people. That doesn't sound like flourishing to me. It sounds like something that's formed us the opposite of human thriving. I think everybody has heard me, you know, rail against social media as a counterfeit institution enough to not go too far down that rabbit hole. But when we become unable or disconnected from the mediating institutions that are shaping and forming our sense of responsibility to one another, not just the actual like experience of being with one another, but also the aspiration of the shape of that relationship. Hmm. Like what do I owe another human being? Well, that's going to be shaped and informed by how well do I know them? What is their relationship to other people? What is their relationship to the world? You know, how have they stewarded what's been given to them? Because no matter left or right in the politics of this country, the word entitlement has some serious baggage to it. And the degree to which that is a bad thing is going to be shaped and formed by how much you think somebody is responsible for where they are currently, right? And that's been used against people in every direction whatsoever. It's crazy. Mm. I think so much of what you're describing, John, is we've always kind of lived in Western culture for at least two or three centuries. I think you could make an argument. It goes back many than that. There's this kind of paradox or tension between our individualism and an institutionalism, right? Mm. And by that, I mean kind of like the prioritization and emphasis on either rights or responsibilities because institutions, yes, they provide a space for rights, but really what they do is they shape and form our sense of individual responsibility. And then rights are the exceptions to that responsibility. But what we've done, and I think this is probably what Mark Sayers is saying, is that rights are the default and responsibilities are the exception. And if not discarded completely. And I think- We've just always assumed that these responsibility forming institutions would be there, that they would always be kind of the, you know, the galactic empire that we have to fight against. And then when the rebellion won, (laughs) we're like, well, what the hell do we do now? And it turns out that the same corruption that was in the empire is actually everywhere else as well. And I don't know if I'm pushing that analogy too far for like real Star Wars fans. So I'm sorry if I overstated that, (laughs) but like pretend that's just non-canon, you know, in a different timeline or something. But we're starting to experience the consequences of that prolonged erosion of institutionalism and the ways that institutions form and shape our responsibility. And when rights overtake everything, by the way, let me just pause here. When I say when rights overtake everything or that that's overemphasis, I am not saying there are not legitimate places where rights need to be fought for. Yeah. I'm just sure. saying that when that very important dimension becomes a primary lens for viewing everything, yeah. we get to a really bad place, right? We become highly isolated, lonely and disconnected. We're watching, I mean, Jonathan Haidt's done some amazing research and has just gobs of data 
around the growing mental health crisis among teens. And it is, it is not discriminating based on religion, whether you're a Christian or not, nor how involved you are in the church. Hmm. It's really concerning and distressing. But even more than that, institutions, I don't think we've realized how much institutions are these storehouses of wisdom and a space where people can experience freedom, even if they can't in the broader world. It's, an, it's a hospitable space, right? And so without that institutional yeah. connection, we're at the mercy of social media companies that are not motivated by our best interests, okay? Pornography, consumerism, all kinds of ways of, I mean, just think about it this way. What percentage of our GDP is a result of products or services used, either intentionally or not, to avoid pain or to mm. avoid suffering? I mean, it is wild when you think about that, about how much of yeah. our lives are actually motivated and driven by trying to alleviate the suffering of living in a very modern, hyper-individualistic world. Right. Yeah. And you put those two things combined, the isolation and the exploitation, and you have what we're starting to see people use the language of a meaning crisis unfolding. Mm. Right. What's that mean? Yeah. So, I mean, in many ways, it is a an exaggeration of something that is always there. And that is what the author of Besties articulates as the vanity of vanities, like that all of life under the sun i.e. in the observable, merely materialistic world, that to its ultimate conclusion is actually very unsatisfying. If this is all there is, then, man, if we're actually courageous enough to face that reality, it's crushing and depressing. It's nihilistic almost. Oh, no, yeah. I mean, there's a sense that nihilism is extremely honest and accurate as a framework of life under the sun that is only yeah. in the observable world, right? So, and we're watching that unfolding with these like skyrocketing rates of depression and anxiety. And, you know, we just talked last week, you probably heard the episode that we had with Steve Cuss, where he's talking about how to deal with the anxiety roiling through our culture, both a leadership standpoint, but also personally and in the midst of it. And it's hard. And so to describe the environment that we're in, if you had to sum all this up, I'd say to use a different fish analogy because <laughs> we just need to be more creative. You know, we are fish that are trying to kind of escape our watery oppression and we've actually maybe succeeded in doing it most of the way. Like it, now that we're truly free, we're suffocating, right? Mm -hmm. So living without institutions and their mediating power and the way that they steward power, as Andy Crouch says is in his amazing book, Playing God, to do so in Western society that is individualistic and this crisis individualism that Mark says, all of these are different ways of saying that we are increasingly repelling without an anchor or skydiving without a parachute. And mm -hmm. neither one of those two things are sustainable. And so if that's where we're in, what is the alternative? And so let me, let me just kind of pose this to you, John. We were talking before hitting record and it really feels like we have a choice between two options, two directions, two trajectories, Right. And the first is the world and the world's way of flourishing that says that flourishing is being free to follow our desires, right? Yes. And if that, we can yeah. just have enough freedom to follow our desires, then we will be satisfied, happy, because we will have achieved our dignity, our dignity, value, and worth, and our identity, right? The problem with that is as we are learning, and what I just described is that we become enslaved to our desires, 
we become suffocating fish, right? Now, the alternative, and this is the thesis, right, is that flourishing is not being free to follow our desires. It's being formed to follow Jesus. And that is something that we received and do not achieve. And if we do that, then we are freed not to follow our desires, but to follow the way, the truth, and the life. And if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that, that has to lead to flourishing, does it not? Right? And I think this is at the heart of what Jesus was saying when he says that like those who lose their lives for my sake will find it. And yeah. he is absolutely describing you know, his faithfulness to his people in the resurrection. But I think he's also describing a way of life, not just the result of following Jesus, but the experience of following Jesus. Right. Well, one thing that was said to me at some point, and it's resonated with me for over a decade now, is that Jesus is the most fully alive human being who ever lived. Mm. And so if that human being, well, okay, the God man, right? Yeah. The one who's fully God, the one who's fully man, but he is the most fully alive human being. So then when he says, follow me, die to yourself, follow me, and I will give you life. He has to be onto something. Like we have to either go, he's lying to us or he's telling us the truth as the Mm. most fully alive human being that's ever lived. Yes. Yes. And it's the difference between death and life, the way of the world versus the way of Jesus. It's the difference between being in and of the world versus being in the world, but yet not of it, right? And so that begs the question of like, okay, how the hell do we do that? Yeah. Yeah, because you and I, we wake up every day, we are... To man, go back to the fish analogy where you know we wake up and we're in the water and we don't even realize how that is forming us. I think every day we wake up, and for many people, their phone wakes them up, right? Their alarm goes off, and like we ask the question, like, how does that form us? And so, what we're trying to get at this season is that we want to be formed, we want to be shaped towards flourishing, but we don't want to be formed by the world as we're living in the world, rather. We want to be in the world formed for life with Jesus and formed by life with Jesus. Mm. Because ultimately what we're trying to pick out this season is that flourishing equals or comes from formation, the formation as we follow Jesus versus flourishing being a freedom to follow our own desires. We want to sort of submit to the process of becoming the type of people that Jesus wants us to be in Mm. the world as we're with him. Mm. That's good. Yeah. It's funny as you're talking about this, (laughs) we ended up cutting your initial plan for introducing the very introduction of this episode. Um, And you were, you wanted to ask me, I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter. No, it's fine. I'm bringing it up now because (laughs) it hurts me, but like you wanted to ask me, you know, what, is the most formative experience you've had in the last year. And I mean, when you were talking about the alarm clock or not the alarm clock, your phone waking you up, I'm like, oh my gosh, it kind of strikes me that as a pastor, you would think, and especially as a church planter, right? You would think that I would feel like I have so much freedom. And yet I feel like so Mm. many choices are made for me. Yeah, And there are some of those times that those choices are made for me, i.e. through the responsibility I feel as a pastor to the people that I'm called to pastor that are very good for me. And I flourish as a result of it, even when it's hard and it feels like death sometimes. However, there are a lot of things like email, 
I don't feel like I get a choice in it. <laughs> and it is not humanizing. It is very dehumanizing. And I feel like this, this is, is why it, it takes me a week to get an email reply from you. Oh God, no, no. <laughs> I told you just text me. Yeah, no, it is because it's, it's, it is, it is drudgery. It is like death. It's terrible. Who likes email? Does anybody? No, I don't think anybody no, actually anyone likes uses email. it anymore. Oh God. Yeah. I, yeah. I want AI to write all my emails, but then if everybody's having AI write their emails, are we even reading them anymore now? We're, um, we're not talking to each other. Yeah. Anyway, I say all this because it's kind of illustrating this profound tension that I previewed a minute ago, but just this concept of what Paul says in the epistles of being in the world, but not of it. And I, mm. it's funny, John, I don't know what your experience is with that phrase, but I did not grow up in the church, but anytime I heard it, after becoming a Christian, I remember thinking like, well, man, y- y'all seem to really kind of just assume what that means. But can you explain that to me? Because not having grown up in the church, I'm like, what does that even mean to be in the yeah. world and not of it? I'm a Christian now. Does that mean I'm not of the world? Is that what it means? But how do I follow that as a command? Why is that not just a statement of the reality? Like you are in the world and not of it. How does that right. function? Yeah, as yeah, a command, yeah. Right? Is it an action or an ontology type thing? Yeah. yeah. Is that a statement of like what is true, or is that something we're supposed to do? Yeah. And I don't think we appreciate because we kind of assume even that just how revolutionary that command is, and how hard it is to yeah. live that way because we've been fish in water who don't know how to describe the experience of being wet, right? But to be in the world and not of it assumes and implies, right, that we can be of the world, that it's possible to be in the world and of the world and to be compromised by the world. But it also implies that it's possible to still be in the world, but of somewhere else. And how are we of somewhere Mm. else that we are not in currently? I mean, I know (laughs) this sounds really basic in terms of just like how grammar in English works, but what Paul is operating off of is that there is a transcendent reality that is true despite our experience. There's an identity that exists outside of ourselves, not within ourselves or as derived from our experience. But to still be in the world implies that there's also an imminent reality and implication to that identity that dictates the way that we move about in the world and live and follow Jesus. And there's this relationship between an identity and reality there that, I don't think we slow down to explore and chew on and ask the question of like, okay, so well, the, how do we live in that tension? Yeah, that reminds me of, I don't know why it's popped in my mind, but it reminds me of being in high school, my senior year, the second day of my senior year, which was not necessarily the best thing for my grades, but the second day of my senior year, I got a letter from Auburn University saying that I had been admitted, I was accepted, I was going to go there. And I was like, I'm in. So second day of my senior year, I'm like, I'm into college, you know, and I still Mm. did well. I didn't work as hard as I should have. (laughs) (laughs) But but what you just said about like, how are we supposed to be of somewhere else that we're not at? Like, how are we supposed to be of somewhere that we're not in? So the reason I bring up that story is like I had been shaped and formed by high school. And then all of a sudden I have this new identity of this place that I'm going to be 364 days from that current date. Yeah. And, you know, for me to be able to be formed by where I was going to be, I had to intentionally lean into 
my identity as an Auburn Tiger because I'd never been there before. And I had to explore what that meant and let that shape me and change me, even though I was still in high school. And I think maybe that's an illustration for what we want to lean into this year. We have in this season, season three, we have three movements that we want to do during the season. We want to talk, first of all, about identity formation, which we see as not being of the world. But then secondly, social formation, which is how do we be not of the world, but still be in the world. Mm. And then lastly, spiritual formation, which is in the world, but not of it. So first of all, identity formation as followers of Jesus, we have both a received identity and a rooted identity. And what I mean by that is a received identity isn't achieved. We've talked about this a lot. It's something that is received by what God says about you and who he has created you to be. But then secondly, that identity is rooted. And what I mean by that is that it doesn't get shifted around by the winds of ideology and culture. Mm. And it's not something that we have to constantly ask, is this who I am? Once we receive it, it is rooted and it does not change. So for instance, as a son of God, by the work of Jesus, that is something that is received, it is declared over me, but then it is rooted, it never changes. Mm. And so we want to explore what it means to have identity formation as believers. So we want to look at that. There's a couple of questions that we want to explore. The first one is, how is identity formed generally for people based on common grace? And then specifically for us as Christians, how is identity formed? Brad, there's a couple other questions you want to hit. As we've been brainstorming on this season, like how do we become aware of how the world is shaping our identity in ways that isn't just a, some kind of like intellectual exercise. It's like, oh, well, that's interesting. Now I'm much more yeah. individualistic than I thought. Like, cool. What are the implications for that, though? Like, how do you resist that formation in ways that are contra to our identity in Christ? And then also, like, I mean, I'll be honest, man, I've heard some other people, you know, that I really respect and think a whole lot of as thinkers and theologians on this, but even the word identity, never mind Christian identity, is not found in scripture. And so even our conceiving of this kind of facet or dimension of formation that is our identity, like what are we assuming even by using that word to never mind achieved versus received? And so I I think there's a lot of really kind of fundamental, let's get back to the roots of this and ask how this is operating because I think whatever foundation we build on is going to be shaped and affected by that foundation. Yeah. And that'll inevitably affect how we see ourselves in the world. So the second part is social formation. Yeah, social formation, to be in the world. And if there is an identity that exists apart from us and outside of the world that is ours, that we receive by grace through faith, then that is going to be an anchor for moving about in the world. Yet it is vitally important that we do so wisely, right? If we have this identity that we've received, but we are not aware of how the environment is shaping us contrary to that, then... Yeah, that's exactly right. Then even if that is objectively true, our subjective experience is going to drive us into... I mean, this is why people are using the language of deconstruction now. That is, in many ways, an articulation of the ways that a Christian identity has been compromised both inside and outside the church by the way that the world is forming us apart from what is biblical and flourishing. You know, and I think this is also where, you know, expressive individualism, which is, you know, a phrase we've used before, this is probably where that dynamic and that tension is most 
pronounced between an individualism and an institutionalism and between rights and responsibilities. And so we're going to lean into a lot of different topics within this kind of second, third or chunk of the season, especially. Yeah. So one way to think about this, if we kind of explained it a different way, would be like, what does it look like to bear the fruit of the spirit as believers and followers of Jesus? But think about how to do that in different ways and in different areas of our lives. So like, what has formed our sense of masculinity more? Is it like the gurus that we talked about with Helen Lewis? Or (laughs) is it the fruit of the spirit? Hmm. What has formed our sexuality more? Is it pornography, the sexual revolution, the images we see on TV, or is it the fruit of the spirit? So what does it look like for us to ask tough questions about how we're formed as we walk in these areas of masculinity, femininity, civics, politics, things like that? What does it look like for us to explore formation and being in the world, but not of the world as we walk in those areas as believers and followers of Jesus? Yeah. And then lastly, we need to talk about spiritual formation as that third dimension. So we are going to do it. We are going to do it. Oh, no, we are. No, absolutely. And because there, (laughs) like, even if we just put the two previous ones together, that in some ways is going to result in spiritual formation, but it's going to be one that's very passive, right? Because there is a participation in our sanctification that is not achieving our sanctification. That's still the Spirit's work, right? But the spiritual formation side is, okay, what does it look like for us to participate in that, to be both in the world and not of it at the same exact time? And I think the thing that drives me crazy about this one, John, you might have to talk me off a ledge, is... (laughs) That's why I'm here. This spiritual formation, discipleship, I don't think we realize how catastrophically compromised by individualism, our very basic fundamental definition of this is. Talk that out. Well, let me just like use the example that we've been talking about this entire time. When I said following Jesus, I bet you almost everyone listening to this thought of themselves individually following Jesus first, Mm -hmm. if not exclusively so. The disciples, plural, followed Jesus. Yeah. And yes, every disciple did. But no disciple, none of the 12, none of the 12 apostles, none of them understood what it meant to follow Jesus apart from the other 11. Correct. Here's another example, right? Name one discipleship or spiritual formation book that you've ever read, John, that's written by a Westerner, that includes as an essential, fundamental DNA level part and definition of discipleship and spiritual formation that includes an ecclesiology, Hmm. what it means to be part of the body and the bride. Okay. And what I don't mean about that is like what you and I have probably parroted before as church planters, which is like church planning is the best way to reach people. And it is, but that's only a means to an end statement. Yes. Right. To be in the world and not of it requires John It requires a community and a people and a place that actually is a foretaste of something that is not of this world. That is not just a means to an end. That is also the end itself. The church is not just the body. It's also the bride of Christ. It's both. And we can make errors in either direction on those, right? But 
you can't do this on your own. And so what does it look like to think about spiritual formation and not just mean, but mean at least the spiritual disciplines and practices of individual prayer and Bible reading and study and the public reading of scripture. Yeah. Like what about the sacraments? Like how does that shaping and forming us? Like how, how does actually the sheer fact that we are gathering, like the ritual of gathering on a weekly basis, how is that shaping and forming us? Because church is more than a building, but it has to include the building also. (laughs) Otherwise, we don't have a greenhouse. We have blueprints carried around by plants that aren't, that are like dying and roasting in the sun. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox on that. But we want to ask some questions around this and like, okay, what the heck does that even look like? How do we unite spiritual formation as a combination of identity and social formation within the institutional church? And in ways that has been especially and particularly separated by individualism. Like, how do we get beyond what can you do for me, spirituality, and an attitude and a posture toward the church, but also towards one another? Because that's going to shape and form all relationships, not just our relationship with the church individually. It's going to affect every single relationship we have. Otherwise, the church would not be what God has said the church is. Right, right. And that gets back to, you know, even where we started in this conversation where flourishing is not just the freedom to be me. Yes, God has created us Mm. as individuals, but spirituality isn't about just expressing yourself. Rather, flourishing comes from being formed by Jesus to follow him. We are free to Mm. follow the way, the truth and the life. And so That's really what we're going to be getting at this season of Post Everything. We're going to be talking about formation and flourishing. And next week, we'll be back with an interview of Bob Thune, who's a pastor in in Omaha, Nebraska, Coram Deo Church. A brilliant thinker. And we're going to talk to him about individual identity formation. And so we're ready to launch out on season three, and we hope you'll join us. I'm excited. See you then. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode helpful, text it to a friend. Please take a minute and rate this podcast. Leaving a review helps other people find us and connect. You can send us questions or feedback by emailing us at posteverythingpod at gmail.com. Thank you.